Hello and welcome to episode five of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Where does the time go? 100 days into lockdown. How are you, James? Yeah, I'm bearing up all right. It's um, the summer, so at least there's uh, loads of cut price strawberries on the shelves and also Wimbledon's not on, so they're all going cheap. Yeah, you don't have to pay double the price for cream either. Yeah, I imagine there's a glut of cream and there's probably strawberry mountains, rotting, there's rotting strawberry mountains of Kent. That'll be a headline. Now they've done up with uh, Bournemouth Beach, they got bored of that. Yeah, it'll be all of the uh, fruit that's gone unpicked across the many fields of Kent. Yeah, How? so how are you, Joe? Yeah, I'm all right. Um, we've got a jam-packed episode today, haven't we, James? So we really should get on, I think, because quite excitingly, we've got our first ever guest. Drum roll, please. Hey, we can put in a little fill there. No, our first ever guest, we do, don't we? Um, he is none other than Philip Gaiman, although it could be Gaiman. We will find out in the interview. And he's coming to talk to us about Everesting. So going up one hill over and over and over and over again until you have made the total ascent of Everest. 8,848 metres. Wow. It does change though, doesn't it? I think the, the height of Everest has changed over the years due to tectonic shifts and, and his erosion. Yeah, he's got worse posture. He's gotten older. As he's got older, he's lost <laughs> an inch, isn't he? Yeah. So... <laughs> he never had the workplace assessment. He never got the proper chair with the orthopaedic backrest. Oh, I, I could do with one of them at the moment, James. Uh, let's crack on with uh, something I like and something I don't like. I really need to make a jingle for this little segment. I'll, I'll do that over the weekend, I reckon. I'll make you one. Yeah, okay. You, you're the music man. Yeah, by the time this comes out, this will be inserted. The jingle will be coming up now. So, James, start off. Start me off. Something that you like at the moment. Uh, other than uh, two punnets of strawberries for £3, I am really loving tubeless tyres, just in general. But specifically, oh yeah, he's yawning. Tubeless I rolled tires. my eyes, listener. Tubeless tyres, what's not to like? I counted because I live in a block of flats, so I've got a lot of time to study my front wheel as I go down in the lift because I put my bike on its back wheel. And I counted no more than what would have been five definite punctures. And they'll right. all be sealed up with tubeless because you can see they've got little wetnesses around them. And I would have been, I would have, you know, I would have been changing that by the side of the road, being a bit sad. Five times over, tubeless saved me. And in particular, if you want to know the tubeless tyre, it's the Schwalbe Pro 1 TLE. And you can have it for about 40-odd pounds, 45 quid. Weighs in around about 350 grams, which is quite a lot, but you're saving about 70 to 90 grams on your tube. Yada, yada, yada. What's not to like? Tubeless tyres. Well, I'll tell you what's not to like. When you get a little bit of a pinch and the sealant doesn't work, so then it just sprays everywhere. You get covered in sealant uh, and you have to put in the tube anyway. Yeah. And what would happen if you didn't have a tubeless tire? You get a little pinch, you have to put in the tube anyway. You just don't, you just don't get the sealant bath. And that's kind of, you know, that's all right. It looks like you've been in a horror movie. Yeah. But what happens when you get home and you pump the tire back up and it, the sealant doesn't take and it just keeps deflating and then you've got to put loads more sealant in? That's such a flap. Uh, I don't know what you're doing, but you're doing it wrong. I, you gave me the advice of how to fix it, James. Yeah, exactly. Put the hole at six o'clock so that um, put it on top oh. of a bit of paper or a cloth so that it leaks down so the sealant pulls at the bottom of the wheel 
and you've got a cloth under there because it will leak out and it's not going to stain your lovely magnolia carpets. That's the issue. I was using a 24-hour clock. Oh, dear. <laughs> and, and what's that you don't like at the moment, James? Uh, quite simply, disc brakes. Because they shout at you. They are shouty little mofos, disc brakes. It just annoys me so much. We are really, really lucky in our job that we do get to play around with a lot of new bikes. But at the same time, you get to experience being the buyer, I suppose, of an expensive bike, what it's like over and over again. And the number of bikes that we test that cost thousands and thousands of pounds and they come out of the box. And it's not like, oh, they need a bit of setting up because I grant you, they've been posted from Germany, you know, Taiwan, whatever. They just haven't been faced. So the frames haven't been properly faced to accept disc brake, uh, disc brake caliper in a way where it's not going to rub. And it's just annoying, that little ting, 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 rubbing yeah. sound that you get on the disc brake. And then even when it is set up perfectly, the other day I went out on a disc bike, uh, it was raining, and as soon as it starts raining, it just sounds like you're, I don't know, it's an elephant in a traffic jam. <laughs> I, I, I love disc brakes, don't get me wrong, and they are vastly superior, especially in the wet and when you come downhill rim brakes but as you said they just don't shut up and all you have to do I've, I've also found if you go over say if you go over a pothole it will just knock the alignment off just ever so slightly and that's it then the, the brake will be shouting at you for the rest of your ride you as you said you'll get that little ding 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 and then when you break yeah i just you don't get that over in brakes no you don't, you don't get generally that. speaking you don't so there we go. That's uh, that, that kind of grinds my gears a little bit. But I'm mm. sure they'll fix it one day, maybe. Doubt it. Anyway, how about you, mate? What have you been uh, liking this, this past fortnight? All right, mine's weather-themed because we live in Britain, don't we, James? We do. And the weather's being its usual self. It's, it is. It's about as reliable as Thibaut Pinot at a Grand Tour. Last week, blazing sunshine. In fact, it was the sunniest day on record last thursday oh this week bleak dreary wind rain all of it it's like winter but there's pleasures and displeasures to be found when riding in both conditions so something i really love about riding during the summer particularly warm weather is when you go out for a ride after work or at the end of a day slightly cooler but you do a hard 90 minutes and what i like to do is on my way back is pop into a corner shop and get myself a nice can of soft drink. And never will it taste as good after a hard effort. So, yeah. You, so what you're saying is what you're liking at the moment is a can of Coke. Uh, Dr. Pepper, specifically. Dr. Oh, okay, no, you're talking my language. I love Dr. Pepper. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've been doing it because, obviously, we're working from home. So at the end of the working day, I'll go out for a nice little 90-minute ride I'll go as hard as I can, make it difficult. And then on my way home, there's a little corner shop up the road. I pop in and get myself a can of Dr. Pepper. Sometimes I treat myself and get a chocolate bar as well. Ooh, um, and a chocolate bar would be? Uh, Double Decker at the moment. Oh, Boris Becker's favourite. Boris Becker's favourite is a Double Decker. Um, and the thing I hate when you're riding in nice weather is when you go on a slightly longer ride is that I'm yet to find a bead on that keeps your drink suitably cool. Yeah, that's true. Even on a on a on a day like Thursday, I so I rode down to yeah. Brighton on Thursday. Wow, that must have been warm. 
that was so warm after about 20 minutes my ice cubes it was more like a it was like a bead of tea it was incredible mm. but you just I, I guess you just you know suck it up mate and what it's clean water isn't it Worst yeah but you, uh, surely there's the technology out there to keep you, your water cool there is but you also get less volume because of it because it's in a some kind of vacuum flask so yeah, swings good. and rounders swings and rounders um and then riding in the bad weather that we're experiencing this week um i love riding in the drizzle and in the rain because it's very refreshing and it's quite good for the mind um as long as you've got a suitable rain jacket which i have have at the moment and that's the katusha light rain jacket uh, i did a review a, a much longer review of that on cyclist.co.uk uh, but in a nutshell it's very good it's expensive at 250 pounds uh but it's about on par with other rain jackets high-end rain jackets um i like it because it comes with its own little pouch mm -hmm. so when you're done with it and you tuck it and you sort of fold it back up you don't just put it loose in your pocket you put it in this little pouch um which means it's much easier to carry and it fits lovely in a handlebar bag something we mentioned in a previous episode that we should all be using uh this summer on our longer rides we should be um, but the thing i hate about riding in wet weather specifically wet weather it seems in the summer is that when it rains and the, the ground's wet is that the oil slicked oil will be brought up to the surface of the road and you'll see the little rings of color form which is i, I guess is it discarded petrol and diesel from cars it's the um well yeah it's all kinds of stuff it's that it's also this the bitumen that well it's the oil um that soaks out of the bitumen and like the tar mix whatever they use so it kind of leaches out uh, and they look like fun little kind of uh fairy rainbows but they're really quite dangerous aren't they they're, they're, they can be dangerous for us cyclists and it always i'm very cautious whenever i see them because i have and i know people that have slid out having gone around a corner hit a slight one of these patches and just the back wheel's gone from underneath them so that's something i really don't like yeah kind of black rain it's like black ice black rain mm. yeah exactly like that um so let's move on james let's do because it because we've got something exciting we've got our first guest on the cyclist magazine podcast so uh cycling is a sport that goes through fads crazes and trends quicker than a nine-year-old does in a school playground one minute we're all going bike packing in a t-shirt and sandals Next thing we know it, we're trying to suck ourselves into an aero skin suit so that we can race along a nearby dual carriageway. And the latest trend to grab our attention is something called Everesting. Well, what is it? All you have to do is pick a hill, ride up and down it in one continuous ride until you tick off 8,848 metres of vertical elevation, the height of the world's tallest mountain, Mount Everest. It sounds simple, but it's far from it. In fact, it's probably one of the hardest challenges that an amateur could do. And it's pretty tough for pros as well. So we got in touch with Phil Guyman because he recently Everested, didn't he, James? Yeah, that's right. He's been in a bit of a kind of head-to-head -head with uh, Lachlan Morton, hasn't he? An Everesting war. If you will. He started an Everesting war. The former World Tour pro turned author, YouTuber, Strava, King of the Mountain, go-getter, sparked a war in which him and Morton are attempting to set the fastest ever Everesting record. Um, so should we hear what he's got to say? Yeah, yeah. So let's welcome on Phil. So Phil Gaiman, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. First of all, you're our first mm -hmm. proper guest on the show uh, that we've had on 
specifically. Uh, firstly, is it Gaiman or Gaiman? Gaiman, but I won't correct you. I don't care. Gaiman, there you go, James. That settles that. Um, and secondly, <laughs> uh, we've got you on today to talk about everything. So it's the latest trend uh, in cycling at the moment, and you're at the forefront of it. You held the record for a short amount of time that's now held by Lachlan Morton. Um, and I think the first question we want to ask is, why would you ride up and down a hill until you reach 8,848 meters of vertical elevation for fun? <laughs> I think that's, that's the, that was why people did it. Um, it's just, it's such a ludicrous idea. And it's sort of once you get into looking at doing, when you just do hill repeats, it's not as bad as it sounds. It's very bad. <laughs> but for someone kind of at a high level, like a, a seven and a half hour ride isn't that abnormal for Lachlan Morton. Um, like eight hours is a long day for me. But the people who get into the 12s and 15s, um, that, that's, that's like to me the real achievement because that's a day and you're out there at night and um, the, the folks who are just like trying to achieve it, it's a, it, no, it is a wacky challenge. Mm. And for, for someone like you, it's a, as you said, it's a seven and a half, eight hour day. Um, that's a lot shorter than a World Tour Pro race or a lot of stage races. But how does it kind of rank up riding a world tour race in terms of physical effort i mean it's so predictable um it's it's very different it's it's really just honestly it's just an endurance ride is the way it boils down like you kind of the the, the first at least for for me and, and lock i think people who are attempting a record you're looking at what's my goal time and then you divide it up by the laps you're doing and you're pretty much just you, you have to be pretty rigid to stick to your pace uh so you don't explode uh, so for me, it was just like, I'm going up at 300 watts and I'm coasting for a minute and I'm going to do that for <laughs> for an entire day. So that's like, so when you, when you did it, you did up um, Mountain Gate Road in Ridge Road in, yep. is that in California in LA? Yeah, it's just as little, I mean, it was, that was during like, it's very strict quarantine. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, I didn't want to go far from my house at all. Um, so it was just kind of the nearest, it just dead ends at a golf country club. So that, that was 920 meters at 11%. And you did that in a time of eight hours, four minutes, six seconds. Morton, Lachlan Morton, who now holds the record, rode last week. He did Risk Canyon Climbing Colorado, which was also 11%, but over double the length at 1.9 kilometers. Um, and he took half an hour off the, of your time at seven hours, 29 minutes and 57 seconds. So, I mean, I guess your next goal is to take that time off of him half an hour seems like a lot of time is that something that's achievable <laughs> like it's obviously it's less when you consider the length of the challenge but half an hour is a, a long whack so an episode of friends so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was hoping to watch friends actually that's what lachlan did when he finished is he, <laughs> he watched friends he was like phil is still riding um no the uh, actually to to correct you a little bit my actual time was 752 my okay. ride time was 802 because i miscounted my laps i had an extra lap uh, but 22 minutes is still an episode of Friends on, on Hulu if you remove the commercials. Um, no, I think, uh, A, nothing's interesting if you know you can do it. So I'll just start there. If I fail, cool, I tried. Um, and, and I got better in the process. But um, also, I guess to my, my feeling on it was when I, when I first did it, the previous record was uh, to be a celestial, this Australian, uh, like an ultra-endurance mountain biker. And that was before it was cool for all the pros to go after it. Uh, so Tobias's time was, I think, eight, eight and a half hours, something like that. And at that point, people were like, I wonder if it's possible to go sub eight. 
Um, so I sort of set my goal time, like I said before, like you, I picked my lap time to go sub eight, which seemed questionably possible at the time. Um, and, and at the end, I was like, okay, I could have gone faster. How much faster? I don't know. So it's sort of like as, as records go, you learn what that ceiling is. And, and so I'm, I'm sure I can go faster. Could it be 22 minutes? Uh, I don't know. But uh, also the Lachlan did at altitude, which is a disadvantage, I think. Um, so it's a lot of it is just finding the the ideal hill. So I've been I've been searching nationwide for that uh, in the process too. Have you, yeah, have so you this... found that hill? And listen, if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but does it does it exist? I mean, how much do you think it played uh, into both your and Lachlan's hands versus other people's, and how mo how much can you improve the time based on what you're riding on? Do you think? I think um, the the hill is a huge part of it, and not not mostly just because of the the gradient. Um, and if you look at the the fastest Everesting times, a lot of people like people who who just try to I'm, I'm going to go Everest. They think, well, I don't want to Everest on too hard of a hill, so they find a hill that's like six percent <clears throat> gradient, and then it turns out a six percent gradient hill, you have to ride two hundred eighty kilometers or something to to complete an Everest. Whereas on a twelve percent hill, it's it's half that. Um, so if you can handle kind of the, the super steep road, so the, the three fastest Everest times that have been set now are me, Keegan Swenson and Lachlan, and they're all in 11% grades. So I'm just looking for a 15%. <laughs> um, if you find something steeper, like, you know, if I, if there's a gradient that's, if there's a 15% climb, I could do it in, in 50 Ks less than Lachlan did. Um, so it's finding like the right hill that not too many turnarounds and like safe, for, uh, you know, like Lachlan's had a couple driveways on it, which scared the crap out of me thinking going down 100 Ks an hour. Um, hope somebody doesn't pull out. But so, the, yeah, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But but mostly it's a non-technical descent, uh, not being too steep. And yeah, so and it's and there's no like database of these. So you're really just scanning Strava and asking people. And how about weather as well? Because I noticed that uh, you did it at, according to um, Everesting CC, the website where a lot of this stuff is logged. You did it at uh, six, uh, 24 degrees and Lachlan did it at 20, uh, sorry, 16 degrees Celsius. So that's quite a difference in temperature, isn't it? Oh, true. Yeah, I think I, to me, like cooler would definitely be better. Obviously, hydration and, and just being exposed to all that's that's really tough on the body. Um, I didn't realize it was that cool for Lachlan. The, um, yeah, I mean, I think he just did it on the day that that, that happened to be the weather. <laughs> um, but, but for sure, like I'm not going to do it when it's super hot out. Um, at this point, it's depending on where the hill is that I find it, there's a good chance I'll have to wait until the fall um, just to get it's I'm not looking for like the, the same thing with Strava like I'm not going to wait until there's a massive tailwind, but I'm also not going to wait. I'm not going to go for it if it's a massive headwind and it's pointless. If you so if you could if you could play God almost Phil and design a road. What would, be, what, would be, what would be its stats? I mean, if you could play God, you probably wouldn't. The first thing you would do would probably not be design a hill, but Right. Once you've done the important stuff and you're, then you come to designing your everything here, what does it look like stats wise for you? Um, I think, I think like 13 to 14% is kind of the steepest that you can get and still not, and still be seated on the bike. So that's sort of the amount that I'm looking at just balance wise. Um, and yeah. And honestly, like the longer, the better, because the longer, the, the more uphill you're going, the fewer turnarounds, the less like time you have to scrub slamming your brakes. Um, and obviously just like not a non-technical downhill. That's, that's kind of, those are the main things, just not breaking to, 
to squeeze down. Because that's because harder than you think to find that. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So, like, because obviously there was an uh, an invalid attempt by Emmanuel Bookman, the Bora Hansgrohe rider, and he, mm-hmm. instead of what you did, where you um, well, you you went on a climb that was less than a kilometer, um, Morton on a climb less than two kilometers, he went up a, an eleven kilometer climb at eleven percent, which means he only actually yeah. had to do seven or eight reps. So while it was an hour of climbing each time, it was then a very quick descent. So would that also be an option going for a, a proper mountain? Yeah, that'd be great. I think that, that was, really, I, I don't think anything, honestly, I don't think anything that steep and long exists in the U S or in North America. Mm. Um, at least not at like, unless it's a crazy high altitude. Um, yeah, but doing my, my climb, I did 60 something reps. Lachlan was 40 something. I think, um, yeah, it's just super monotonous, but it also having doing multiple laps enables someone to, to feed you more often. And like, I, by the, by the end, like I was getting, you know, a, a pack of ice every other lap, like that kind of thing. Uh, so there's, there is some convenience to that, but for sure, like every time you turn around, it's, it's 10, 15 seconds, mm. uh, that, that just gets gone. So, so Bookman's for sure was a, was a good effort. So what is your, sorry, you go on, Jay. I was going to say, like, how much are you eating? for that because you're burning you must be burning a lot of calories because you're pushing sort of your your almost threshold on every ascent so you're going to need to keep right. fed keep keep hydrated so are you going through an excessive amount of bars and gels or is it just like a usual ride for you no it was definitely like i i was planning the the nutrition aspect i mean it is it's it's just an endurance ride but it's a really long endurance ride that people are watching on youtube in my case so like <laughs> um let's let's not screw it up yeah so i had i probably have like two bars an hour basically and then uh closer to the end i was switching to gels um mostly i had something with sugar i had monster hydro for the first few laps and then uh less caffeine and and more sort of water and and uh, electrolytes moving forward what does your um your bike look like because i remember when you did your worst when you retired in 2016 you went into the worst retirement ever uh, being a man who got all the KOMs, you had a super stripped downhill climb bike because you're not going downhill. It's only about getting to the top. But presumably, right. as you said, descents are all important. So what does your bike look like for Everesting? Yeah, unfortunately, my bike now looks like a normal bike. It is, I have a, a factor van, so it's super light, uh, but I did not saw the handlebars off. The, that turned out to be super annoying. I learned the uh, the you don't realize at least I didn't realize how much I used the drops until I didn't have them, and then I was like, I'm just having my hands there. Um, yeah, so it's it's a standard setup. Um, I've Mavic wheels. SRAM is sending me for for the next one since I'm looking for a steeper climb. This one, the my first attempt, I think I averaged like 84 RPMs, which isn't too bad, but I, I'd prefer to do 90 or at least be able to do 90. Um, so I'm gonna get the uh, one notch easier they have got a good selection of, of grainy gears so i'm going to want to throw those on for the next attempt but for the most part like other than that other than the the gearing will look pretty funny it'll be a dinner plate in the back but uh otherwise it looks pretty normal yeah, i was going to say with the gearing i mean this is a bit of a dumb question perhaps because it depends on what hill you're on but how often do you find yourself changing is it one of those things where you leave something in reserve and then you get more and more knackered and you're going into those super granny gears or are you pretty much almost riding a single speed for most of it on on 11 percent, going like 300 watts was i was in the the 33 cassette and the little ring the entire time like that was just that's just to, to, to roll the pedals over that's just how steep it was 
And how much do you reckon your bike weighs in this guy is the fact of um you're talking about? Um that one I think that one's around uh, let me think. I think it's around six kilos. It's super light. Okay. Um, how about how much yeah. do you weigh? If that's a not too personal a question. Um, no, it is. I'm just doing the the metric math. I think I'm at like 68, 69. Okay. And how does that compare to when you're racing? Uh, about the same. Like when I was racing, I would probably fluctuate from 67 to to 70, depending on time of year and what was going on. So I'm I'm. That's the the next part of my my Everesting training is is losing a kilo or two. Uh, between now and the next one. Okay. Um, and how about your power? What's your kind of FTP at the moment? The uh, FTP are like 385. Wow. <laughs> it's similar. It's I, I didn't lose too much. It, I found that like, it's funny from, from the pro days, I'd have to, you know, it's week on stage race, week off, whatever. Um, and, and that was super hard on the body. I found that I could, I can have about the same power once a month <laughs> that I used to have to do, uh, you know, every day. Uh, so I, I can, I can, I do a lot less training than I did and, and a lot less structure, but, uh, but for the most part, like my actual efforts are about what they were then. And do you ride with a power meter for everything? Or what kind of yeah, absolutely. Okay. And what are you also looking at things like heart rate and stuff? Or is it literally just hit my power numbers? I know I can sustain that then go. Right. For the most part, I was just looking at like my lap times and those targets, um, which, which I'd go, you know, I went beforehand to see like, okay, at this many Watts, I'm doing this lap time. Um, but yeah, for sure. I'm just looking at power. I was the, the first, it's funny, like the first two hours feels so easy at the pace that, you know, you have, like, I know this pace will be really hard at the end. Um, but the first, the first two hours, I was just trying to govern myself to, to not go over 320 Watts. Uh, Cause I know that I shouldn't. So we, you sort of said at the beginning there that it was uh, a challenge for uh, sort of amateurs, like normal cyclists at first. And But you appreciate that the real effort is the guys who are doing 12 to 15 hour days to do an Everesting challenge. Um, sort of, obviously, you come at it from a perspective of being a former pro. So it's you're racing it, but how achievable is it for just a regular amateur? Is this something that because we sort of, me and James were talking before, and like the hardest sportif in, one of the hardest sort of sportifs in Europe is the Marmot. And and that's mm -hmm. only 5,000 meters of elevation. But to, to complete that, most people will have to put in about six months worth of training. So I'm guessing everything's just a completely new ball game for non-pro riders or former pro riders like yourself. Right. Yeah. And like I said, the, you'd be surprised how much the altitude stacks up if you're not riding an inch of flat road. Mm. Um, so it, it, I, I think those efforts might be comparable to the, the Fonda you're talking about. I haven't done it, but um, you know, I, for me, like a big endurance ride would be like 3,500 meters is sort of what I would do for like a hard six hour day. Um, and, and the Everesting is just like sort of tacking on another hour and a half, two hours to that as far as intensity. You're just, you're just on the pedals all day. That's, that's the main difference. Um, I, it's, it's definitely like a notch harder than obviously like a century ride. something like that, the things that, that most people train for. Mm. Um, I, I think the only, re you know, the thing is you can go try and, and just be open to like, well, not today. <laughs> uh, if, if your if your body allows it. And the, really the only concern I have for people, for, for anyone in the world trying it is just like how fast you're going on the downhill. Mm. And if you're not able to sort of be, you're not able to concentrate and be focused at, at that kind of speed, um, you know, like seven hours into an effort you get a little cross-eyed mm. 
Um, I don't know if it's a good idea. The one, uh, a cyclocross racer that I, that I know a little bit did a uh, hundred thousand feet of climbing. So three Everest, it took him three days and it was for a charity. This was like last week. And that was exactly my feeling. And I'm kind of like, okay, how are your knees? Like, is your season ruined? <laughs> and, and you didn't sleep, you know, like, like at, at some point, like that's not a great idea anymore. And he's fine. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I don't think you'd encourage that on someone just falling asleep on the bike. Yeah. Cause we're, we're um we've sent off a one of our one of our writers 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 sorry to go Everest for the next issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of suggested it and then no one put their hand up until we sort of forced one guy into it. So, <laughs> um, but if you could give him one piece of advice, or one piece of advice for any amateur going into an Everest, what would it be? Would it be sort of get your gears right, uh, your nutrition? What would what's the big thing? Would you say? I think just doing the prep beforehand, like knowing knowing a lot of times that you're targeting and and having sort of the the um, the discipline to to stick to your pace and and stick to and like have your nutrition plan, uh, have someone there to kind of like pass you food, that sort of deal. Um, it's it's really just like it's having legs as part of it, and then just like doing the homework, and doing the math to not screw it up. How many people do you have kind of crewing for you, as it were? Um, I had. I had someone there all day that sort of did shifts. It was like my girlfriend and then I did it with a buddy. Uh, so his girlfriend was there. And then again, like this was, this was made COVID and other people were not welcome. <laughs> uh, was sort of how we looked. I was like, I don't want any other people around me. I don't want people in the video. So I look like a moron, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And presumably you also had a bit like a cyclocross rider or well, to a rider. You had a spare bike and loads of spare kit and stuff or? Um, yeah, I had a spare bike, but I didn't have to use it. Um, yeah, I had, I had all the things sitting there, but thankfully there were no, uh, no and it's, you know, it's not a ride like that. Isn't that hard on one bike, you know, like you hope you don't get a flat tire. I had spares there, but, um, it's not, it's not that demanding. How demanding is it on your body? I mean, what, how, how awful on a scale of one to 10, did you feel afterwards? A lot of people I know have done They've done the effort. They've done the effort, and then immediately announced they'll never do it again, which is what I did. Uh, like I certainly like I finished like the last few laps. I was like I'm trying to squeeze out all the time, and I was going, I was doing faster than than other laps. Um, and yeah, so you're you're a special level of empty that I only got at a few big races over time. You know, there's like races where I'm the 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 Tour of Saint Louis. I was defending yellow against Quintana because I got an early breakaway one day. I was similarly ruined <laughs> as when he smashed me up a mountain that day um, that is just collapsing at the finish line. There's, there's a few times that I remember it being that bad, mm. um, you know, but like I, I rode the next day. I didn't rode all right hard, but I rode. Um, I didn't want to Everest a week later, like Lachlan did, <laughs> but, but I was all right. Yeah. I don't know if I could get on the bike for a few days after such an effort like that. It seems mad, but um Another important, uh, another interesting thing from this is that someone like Morton is doing kind of what you do, Phil, in that is using social media to do adventures and rides. Uh, but he's being paid to do it as a world tour pro, um, and world tour riding is is a bit of a chain as a as kind of changed from when you were racing in 2016 with the Cannondale team. In that it seems like they're paying guys to do these alternative calendars, go out do. Dirty Kanza, Everest, ride the free peak, uh, free free peak cyclocross challenge. So, is do you reckon being a pro is more fun now because there's more freedom? Is you know, 
it definitely seems a bit, you know, Morton gets paid to not really turn up to World Tour races, instead do all these, I say fun, in with a, an asterisk, but different challenges. Right. I think that the, um, well, first of all, I think that if racing was taking place, he would be there. Hmm. Uh, like the, the that team, I think they're like, at least my, my feeling of it is they, they had those couple key events, but they sort of like throw the guys there and send them back and the real targets are, are European stuff. And hopefully this year sort of taught them the value of the alternative things where it's, it's more than just lip service um, that, you know, I, I got, like remember last year, they, they all did dirty Kanza. And then I think they left that night and there was a whole hullabaloo because a lot of the locals were mad. They missed the like second podium presentation the day after. And it was disrespectful. It was a, a joke, but the, uh, but they, they don't, they don't really like, they do those events on camera, but they hadn't really done the events and, and kind of lived them, I think until, until this year now that, well, the events don't exist, but, but the challenges, they were able to sort of focus on them and put more time in. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's when, when I was racing, I remember like, you really weren't allowed to have fun or at least like admit it, um, which was part of why I didn't really fit in. I was like, well, you pay me shit and this is dangerous. I can't have fun. <laughs> um and 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 also like why sort of my stuff was so well received when i stopped and started messing around on the internet like i wasn't trying to do this but like people sort of were enjoying the the story and and strava and youtube and all that stuff um and i think well i ef certainly noticed the what was missing in their game was was riding with actual people who pay for their bikes mm. um and and having access to 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 humans and not just other pros and being in that silly circle um, so yeah, I, I hope they, they figure out more of it. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous, but it's also like, I, I enjoy my freedom of like, I get to just this year, it's like, well, I was supposed to do something else this year. And I was like, well, I guess Everesting is the thing cause I can't travel. Um, mm. but, but for the most part, like going out and, and kind of being my own boss, like I have to figure out all my own sponsors and, but I'm also not accountable to Vodders, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, there's another trend that seems harder called trenching. Have you heard of it? The so it's uh, sounds vulgar <laughs> it, it, it sounds a bit blue definitely. How about the mariana trench so the mariana trench which is the the lowest point of the seabed um eleven thousand and thirty four meters under under sea and people are now doing eleven thousand and thirty four meters of descent but also that means you've also got to come back up so would the would that be something you would uh take on that's something i think i would do on accident while i'm trying to everest or something right yeah yeah, yeah, it's just a little, it's, it's really, they're just doing like 1.4 Everestings. Is that it? Um, yeah, about that. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I'm not like descending. I enjoy descending, but it's not like something I'm <laughs> looking to do. I, I was always like, I, I did enough risk when I was racing. Like I've, I've, I've ridden downhill at 100 Ks an hour, bumping elbows with dudes enough that like I'm sort of sad. Like I'm, I'm fine to grab the brakes into the turns these days. Um, I don't need the thrill. <laughs> um, you mentioned when you were uh, trying to defend yellow against Quintana. I'm assuming a day like that, you've got you've got an earpiece, and the DS and chat is chatting, and the team are chatting away, and you've got the hubbub of the crowd, and just everything is kind of overwhelming. So maybe not a lot of space to really think. But when you're out there on your own, going up past the golf club, <laughs> what are you thinking about when you're <laughs> when you when you're pedaling? How much time do you really kind of consider? the bike and, and the action and you know are you just like working out when your next mobile phone bill is due or you know <laughs> <laughs> most of it i did with with a buddy and we were just talking like at that kind of pace that you can you can have a conversation um 
yeah, we were just kind of like the first few hours were telling jokes and the last hour I was telling him to shut up. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's sort of one thing that's really nice about it is removing all of that stuff. Like I'm, I'm doing, I'm not doing it because somebody's barking in my ear. I'm not doing it for a paycheck directly. It's very removed. At least I still have sponsors, but no one's like, you get a bonus if you, you know, um, or you're fired if you don't, <laughs> it must be more likely. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I kind of get to appreciate it and enjoy it and, and kind of live in the moment a little more. Mm. Do you think you'll, because I'm not, I mean, you, you will obviously not remember this right, but um, I wrote the Taiwan KOM um, on a year that you did it. And I remember seeing you, oh. um, seeing at the start line and uh, really very nicely, actually, over the breakfast buffet, you were talking to this young kid and giving him some encouragement. And I think the kid ended up finishing like sixth or something ridiculous. So obviously the words were. Oh, wow. But um, I noticed you on a couple of uh, those, you know, the bigger prestige sportives. You've done those now. Will you be looking mm -hmm. to all kind of an alternative style calendar like the Colin Strickland's, like the Lachlan Morton's next year? I, I think like I've kind of, since I've moved away from racing and competition, I've, my life has just improved dramatically. Um, and, and sort of not, not just from, from the, the travel perspective and the hullabaloo, it's just like getting dirty Kansas going, like just what, what tires me out about that isn't doing the ride. It's like, seeing it's like guys elbowing me in the first 10k that i know aren't going to be there in the last 10k just the, the the stuff that always annoyed me from racing like when i stopped racing i was i was over it in a lot of ways um and also just sort of pretending it's important you know is is just difficult <laughs> at some point just like i but by then like i just like who cares who wins you're know, like we're all going to try but it doesn't change anything anymore and like this is so my, my stuff of, of content based and, and sort of personal challenges and interacting with people and, and kind of like a charity base behind it has been, has felt really good. And, and like, I wouldn't, I'm not against doing an event here and there, but, uh, but if I do it, it's kind of just more to, to be around people and, and have a good time. And it's not something I'm like looking to, to go for. Okay. And, and will you always be on the bike, do you think, or you're not like a secret rower or a secret runner in the making and just ready to burst through and start doing yeah, that? Yeah, because you can Everest run as well, which sounds horrible. Of course. <laughs> yeah. No, part of, part when I, when I stopped racing, I was, I was, this is a whole, a whole long story. I was supposed to get a job and for two months I stopped riding. I was like, I want to, I didn't want to not ride again, but I wanted to actually take a break. And, uh, and I was, my body didn't like it. I was grumpy. Uh, unfortunately I'm a lifer with, uh, with this thing and I suck at everything else. Like I, uh, I was trying to swim and it's just, it, no, it's no good. And, uh, finally, Phil, before we let you go, um, you did it for charity as well. So you didn't just do it because you love to suffer. You also did it for a good cause. So if you could just explain what that cause was and, and why, why you did it for them. Yeah, it's been nice seeing a lot of folks sort of, this is a good time for charity. Um, and people seeing that, that cycling, I don't know. It's, it's a weird disconnect of saying like, I did this ride. So you should give money to these kids. <laughs> like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it is like, if you have a platform, you can do it. And, and every time I, I kind of ring that bell, a lot of donations come through. So yeah, the charity, I've been working with No Kid Hungry uh, for three, four years now. Um, and what they do is through, through government programs and through schools and through like lobbying in Washington, DC, they, uh, they just fund stuff like breakfast at school. So kids, a lot of kids are dropped off at school with no food and then guess who's getting bad grades uh that kind of thing so it's it turns out like you give them a dollar worth of oatmeal and that kid is now a b student and they're going to college 10 years later and it does make a big difference it's a really nice way to tackle privilege and poverty
in in the U.S. where it's it's kind of accessible and they do a really good job. So yeah, it's a awesome. And where can we where can people find that link? Oh, anywhere on my social, yeah, at Phil Gaiman Social, I've 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 got them pretty prominent. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Phil. Uh, it's good to always hear about everything, and I don't know if me and James will be doing it anytime soon. Yeah. And our colleague that we've sent off to go do it in Wales. So. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> cool guys, Cheers. thank you. Thanks, Phil. See ya. So that's Phil Gaiman, or Gaiman. I can't remember. What did he say? How did he prefer being? He said he didn't um, care. He said he, didn't, he said he no he, no 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 no. Read between the lines, my friend. He said he wouldn't correct you. That does not mean okay, he does care. Person does not. Yeah, it means he cares bitterly. No, he was uh, terribly terribly lovely. Um, thanks again, Phil, for coming on. And it was Guyman, technically. If you ever see him on the street, call him Guyman. But he lives over in the states, so unless you're listening to this over there, you don't see him in those streets. He's not doing Swain's Lane everything, is he? No, that would be horrible. Yeah. Because I think that I've. I've I think that'd be like over a hundred reps to do that. Could you barely make up any vertical elevation? I don't know. I was looking at some of the other because what so this brought to my attention the fact there is this website called Everestingcc.cc. So it's yeah. like proper legit. There's someone it's, backing it. Someone yeah, puts, so it's the it's the Hell's Five Hundred crowd who who are the officials behind Everesting. So they're the ones who have to authorize and authenticate any attempt right um, along the guidelines, which is your everything attempt can only be it has to be on the same climb it can't be a loop you have to be up and down up and down um making sure that you get the right elevation checking your strava file to make sure that you didn't have like a 10 hour break in between etc etc yeah that's one thing i did figure that it'd be pretty easy to manipulate the whole Strava doping thing was years gone now, people messing around with their uh, GPX files. But I don't know, you hope that this is the sort of thing that just really attracts enthusiasts. And if you look at some of the times on there, then you can tell like it's only done by people that they ain't never going to win it, they just want to do it. But one, yeah. but, but you know, we, we jest about doing climbs in the UK and then being short. But they're also blooming steep. So there's Kirkstone, which mm. is uh, up north, Peaks, Lakes kind of way. And that's the one that uh, Hannah Rhodes, so she, or we rather, in the UK, can lay claim to having the fastest female Everester. So that's uh, Hannah Rhodes, and she did it up Kirkston. And that took her nine hours and eight minutes. So that's 163 kilometers she rode, up basically 10.9% uh, average um, uphill struggle. And that's pretty serious. So I think it equated, if anyone knows Kirkston, it equated to 37 reps hill reps of that which is pretty serious and don't forget that that also includes coming back down which is why the length of kirkston times um times two is what the actual like attempt is that's why it's 163k that's pretty impressive because i'm pretty sure kirkston has some sections that are almost 20 percent yeah and i think she chose a section of it it wasn't the whole thing right okay but what is mad is, is that percentage thing. There's not anyone who's really taken it seriously that's gone under 11% as their average gradient. So that speaks to me saying that's that's a good gradient. And then weirdly, if you look at, because they do running, which yeah. is just next level. And the fastest runner is a guy called um, Gary Gellin. Hey, Gary Gellin. Hey, Gary. Hey, Gary Gellin from California, man. If you're listening, congratulations. Um, he did it, sorry about the accent. He did it in 109 kilometers, 11 hours, 11 minutes. 
Right. 11 hours. 11 hours, 11 minutes. 16.2%. Oh. That was his average grading. He did that in June, so a couple of the, about a week or so gone. Because he thought what he'd done before was probably a bit hard because he decided to go out for 93K, averaging 22%. Up a 22% <laughs> And that took him 13 hours. So he, he dropped down from 22% average yeah. to 16% average. And he saved himself around about two and a half hours. And wow. obviously... But you're some... not running. On oh, 22%, you're not running. Like, no, I, I no, don't no. Care. I don't care what anyone says. You're not running. You're jumping. It's, just, it's like, it's yeah. yeah. You're, you're jumping up a hill, <laughs> right? You're not, you're not running. Yeah, it's like, it's like being on one of those step machines. You're literally... I mean, he's probably a fell runner or something. And, the, yeah, the distance is... A is fall quite... runner, more like. <laughs> but the distance is quite different. Because you got like you're going way under what the cyclists are doing. Again, most cyclists are doing like Phil and and Lachlan and people are doing uh, 150, 160 kilometers. Yeah. Amateurs again, probably because of proximity to stuff, are getting closer to 200k. So, so uh, it's, it's a long, long way. James, did you know that we also make a cycling magazine? A cycling magazine, you say, Joseph? We do. And we want to give our listeners a taste of Cyclist Magazine with a special offer of free issues for £5. That's three months' worth of knockout writing, if we do say so ourselves, and stunning photography from the world's best writers and snappers for the same price as a coffee and some cake. All you have to do is visit www.cyclistmag.co.uk forward slash podcast. You'll enjoy all the benefits of being a subscriber, which include free delivery, each issue with you before it's in the shops, subscriber-exclusive covers, and exclusive cycling deals within the industry. So all you need to do is visit cyclistmag.co.uk forward slash cyclistmagazine podcast and get it bought. So James, you've been working for Cyclist Magazine for the best part of a decade now. And you've done some pretty gnarly climbs around the world, some pretty tough sportifs. What What's the hardest one? Do any of them come even close to everything? Um, I'm never going to Everest, so I'm never going to be able to tell you this. But I do know that the hardest sportive I've ever done was the Kits, uh, the uh, Ostthaler Rad Marathon in yeah. um, Austria, in the Tyrol region. And that's five and a half thousand metres climbing over 240-odd kilometres, give or take. Sounds horrific. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be for about three quarters of it. And then the last quarter was absolutely groveling at 2,000 plus metres, cramping up. Luckily, I don't know what I was... I had something to... That was was right. I started... I didn't have my headphones, but I did have my phone. And I realised the only way I could get through it was to distract myself. So I put on some tunes on my Spotify, but I didn't have Wi-Fi. I didn't have 4G because I was too high. So I just played what was on there, which was just the Godfather soundtrack. <laughs> so I was just coming up this climb with the Godfather soundtrack coming out of my back pocket and there's no one else around. Then turned the corner and there's this guy that sort of like had sidled up next to me and just said something to me in Austrian, which is obviously along the lines of what the hell are you listening to, mate, before cycling off. So the Godfather theme tune got me around that day and that was a big day, probably nine, nine three quarter hours, I think it took. Is that the longest day you've had in the saddle, in the chair? No, longest day, country mile, is a 20-hour day. And how far was that? What, what was that? 
that was cycling uh, trying to emulate the second stage so bear with me the second stage of the first tour de france because the first to set yeah to celebrate it in 2013 because obviously right. the first one was 1903 the first stage was boring as hell and started in paris so it was just going to be an absolute faff to yeah. leave like central paris and go out on the roads so we decided to do the second stage and also the second stage of the first technical climb in uh, the Tour de France ever, which is the Col de Republique, which is uh, what famously where I think um, Henri de Grange got his knickers in a twist about derailers and uh, Paul de Vivi's the uh, kind of king of the derailers, who was a journalist at the time who wrote under the name uh, Velocchio. He was yeah. kind of caught out using these things by de Grange and de Grange was just like, what is this artifice of the derailleur? Abomination, what are you, some kind of lady? Uh, and then at some point, de Grange raced the lady with a derailleur, I think, and then she beat him and he was just like, okay, maybe I uh, changed my accent and go back to my papers. So, um, so, we were, so that was back in those days, they just did horrendous distances, even from the off. So that was 374K. Wow. from uh, Lyon to Marseille with one climb in the middle. And I rode it on a bike that we tried to make feel like a Tour de France of the era bike. So it was a single speed with which maxed out at probably uh, 20 miles an hour in terms of spinning out on the flat mm. 20 miles an hour. Not that I can do this 15 hours into this ride anyway. Uh, and we laid it up and I had a tubular around my neck and all this sort of stuff. And you still think that I was so far off the hell that those guys went through. And that took me 20 hours on the bike, 15 hours actually spent pedaling, five hours sat by the side of the road crying at different wow. junctures. Wow. And uh, wow. started at 2 a.m. and then finished at night time and ended up doing 400K because obviously I can't route plan for want more toffee. And um, they didn't have GPS computers in 1903. No. I mean, they barely just, I mean, they hadn't, cartography was like kind of like an iPad. Yeah. Any kind of, yeah, that, was, that was like witchcraft. And they, it's all, all of these things you start thinking about the differences. They had like candles or paraffin lamps instead of headlights. I had headlights, big, powerful 1600 lumen headlight to light my way on pitch dark country roads. They had nothing. They would get leapt on by bandits. They would have other people who are other riders' mates arranged to like meet them. And fill them in. Fill them in at various points along the route. <laughs> it was just pretty. And it but, was one, but then they also got trains and would attach a fishing wire to cars and put it on a piece of cork in their mouth and get dragged along. Which I think uh, is brilliant. And we should try yeah, doing that one day. I, I think we should as well. Um, and they would also drink copious amounts of brandy and take amphetamines. Yeah. To- and I heard I heard one quote from uh, Henri Pelissier who rode with his brother in like the twenties, and he said they put cocaine in their eyes. <laughs> I don't really know what you, he said. It was amphetamines for the gums and cocaine for the eyes. <laughs> I mean, any any cyclist should know that that's the case. Yeah, but that's that's a hard day out then, James. That must have yeah. absolutely taken it out. You should not been been not for six, I guess. Well, I was sick all over my hotel room when I got back. I passed out. Side of any good ride. Yeah. Any good night out or any good ride ends up you waking up in your own vomit. Yeah. So that happened. How about you? What's what's the hardest thing you did other than the other other week when you were like, oh yeah, I just rode like 260 kilometer round trip down to uh down to the coast in Kent and back just because Yeah, so longest day of the year on the twenty second of June, I did two hundred and sixty two K with a couple of mates 
you know, all within the, the social lockdown um, rules. But yeah, we did like the long way round to Rye and then back up through very hilly Sussex and Kent. Is that a Chaz so, and Dave song? What? The long way round to Rye. Yeah, it's really good. Definitely listen to it. Um, no, it was all right. Like, thing is, is Kent is, Kent's not flat, but we managed to avoid a lot of the climbing on the way out. So we did like 140k with 800 metres of climbing. And then the last 120k had 1,700 metres of climbing um, and lots of very steep stuff. And that was nine hours in a chair. So we averaged about 28k an hour. Wow, that's uh, fast, man. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Uh, I was groveling towards the end because I was about 15 kilos heavier than the next lightest rider. Um, so I was perfectly fine on the flats. But as we started to go uphill, especially that late in the day, it was, it was tough. They weren't the hardest thing I've done. Like the the length was fine. I could I could have probably kept going. I had a nice pizza afterwards, and my legs felt fine the next day. I'd say that the hardest thing I've done was is a toss up actually. So it's either the first sportif I ever did for the magazine back in 2017. It was called the Bukonig, uh Festival. It's basically a Swiss version of Leroyka. So it's period drama esque. You have to turn up on a bike that was manufactured before 1989. You have to ride it in retro woolen kit. Uh, you have to have shifters on the down tubes. Everyone's riding a 53, 39, 11, 22, 23. I think I had an 11, 20, 11, 19 cassette. Um, and it was through the Swiss Alps. So it was like 2,000 meters of climbing on this 10 kilo bike with the smallest gear being a 39, 19. Um, and there was a climb in it that got up to 30%. And so it weren't like the longest day, it was like 100k and two and a half thousand meters of climbing. But I was hauling around a very heavy bike and I'm a very heavy human. <laughs> and I was, and I was really suffering. And then because it was a vintage sportif, they only had cheese at the feed zones. And I, I don't like cheese that much. And it's, and either way, it's not the greatest fuel so i was really suffering towards the end yeah i mean i'd recommend it it was awesome like riding around in retro kit on a retro bike really fun and it takes place in a in a town in a ski town called gestat which is where princess diana and charles used to spend their winters by the way it's it's like the un it's like the the cool version of uh what's the other really expensive place in switzerland samaritz yeah. Yes. So Gestatz, the German-speaking Samaritz, um, very expensive there. Uh, so I definitely recommend, like, go do it. But it's really hard if you try and do it on a old bike. And take your own food, so you're not having to eat cheese. Yeah, take your own food, so you don't have to drink cheese and and like cold tea out of a cauldron. That's what I love about aerobic events is when they, at the same time, they'll have other bits and bobs, but they'll also have wine and stew and cheese and crusty yeah. bread like quite a good offering but yeah really good but maybe not in the middle of a ride have you done Leroyka? i've only sort of uh, seen it second hand i've never done it i've done parts of riding around tuscany and some of the chalk roads i i did Leroyka last october um and i'd recommend it to anyone it's the best sportif i've ever done except like the temptation is to just drink because you're in chianti region and the food's delicious the wine's de- incredible so you end up drinking quite heavily the night before because they lay on a party for all the participants then obviously you get up slightly hungover like i did and it's quite warm 
so I was going through a lot of water and then I didn't realize until I got to the third feed zone that they don't provide normal stuff they just provided more red wine (laughs) (laughs) so I had to hydrate with more red wine um which was horrible Um, but that was a toss-up and and the other one that I found really tough was the first ever time I did Paru Bay back in 2015 because you don't do any climbing it's not so hard on the legs really it's 100 I did the 145k one and so it's easy on the legs you you feel fine at the end and it's flat it's just that you go over loads of cobbles and they're hellish and at the end you won't be able to feel your hands or your bum or your ankles uh, and you'll have massive blisters develop you'll have a headache because you've been rattled around like a rag doll uh, <laughs> and it's and it's and it's absolutely it is it's really as bad as like professionals say it is um i know you've done some of the sections of, of cobbles before it really is hard but you will yeah. do it again i went back the next year and did it again because i loved it but for the next like for the first two days afterwards i couldn't you know what i found i couldn't open my hands they'd closed like a claw yeah i know what you mean it's like uh, i don't know if you ever had a venus fly trap when you're a kid and you get impatient waiting for flies to go in so you just like give it a little tickle yeah. with like a little cocktail stick and the speed at which the fly trap closes, they don't go vroom because they're kind of feeling it out. They're it's like a, a soft like, closed cupboard. They're like a soft, yeah, yeah. It's just like the original soft closed hinge. And it's a bit like that with your hands, isn't it? After riding the Arenberg, you're just kind of like looking at it, but it's like on your mouse and it might invol- involuntarily just like start touching like left click for no reason. Mm. And you move it and it just kind of just starts moving slowly shut just on its own. And you can't really do anything about it. <laughs> it's just, it's almost like it's reaching for a dream. The dream where it used to hold a handlebar. And that's what I found on um, that uh, Leon to Marseille, like Tour de France recreation thing. It's just, I got to the point where I was, could, I was inventing new hand positions that no man has ever used on a bike before. I'm like holding, I'm doing a the kind stem. of, yeah, no, I'm doing like um, a deadlift stem hold in the middle, you know, one wrist underneath, one wrist over the top. I'm holding the inside of the drops. So I'm leaning on it with my handlebars. I'm considering maybe doing a kind of Tom Simpson sitting back and steering it with my feet, that kind of like it's it's almost the hardest thing is just staying comfortable for that long. Yeah, I I found that when I did Rubey the second time, and I reckon a lot of listeners will will have had the same experience, was that by about Monson Pavel and the car for the Labra towards the end of the sporty, when I got to the end of the segment. I could get my hands off the handlebars just, but because they were closed shut because of how bad the vibrations were, I would then use my leg to unfurl my fingers. So then I could <laughs> go back to using the hoods. Nice. Yeah. And, it's... Yeah, my hands were, your hands swell up. Like, mm. listeners, if you rode Peru Bay, if you've done the Peru Baseball Thief, let us know what you found afterwards. But I found that my hands were swollen. Um, I had a massive blister on my palm and I got really bad sunburn because it was foggy in the morning and it was 30 degrees by the time I got to the finish. I didn't put any suntan lotion on, so I was really, I was burnt to a crisp. Wow. But I, yeah, that was horrific, horrific. But you definitely, you go back you and go do back it again because it's Roubaix. It's amazing. Well, I've, I've dug up some good facts for you though on really, really hard stuff, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. So the hardest technical sportive as in like it's one single organized event is the Trans-Siberian Extreme. That's 9,103 kilometers. 
which is pretty beasty. That's split up into stages. Um, the longest, and, and, and I guess not only is that really hard, you're going across Russia and Siberia. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah. So just to really highlight the Siberian bit, you go from Moscow to Vladivostok. <laughs> so it's like, just even even motoring that is fairly arduous for some vehicles. And I'm pretty sure that there's going to be lions, tigers, and bears on course. Yeah, that could all kill you. <laughs> yeah. As much as a massive truck and sort of like bandits. <laughs> so that I will not be doing that one. No, James. No. Um, the uh, most ascent that will make, if the Tour de France happens this year, yeah. then the most ascent in one stage will come stage 13, unlucky for some, right? Finishing, um, I can't remember if it's in the massive central, 4,400 metres in single stage, 191 kilometres long. That's a pretty big day out, and that's right. Oh, no, that's a doddle. That's a that's doddle. A doddle. Like yeah, they got it. <laughs> but it really puts into perspective doesn't it you know like the day after Paris Bay where your, your bum is so numb you don't know if you're sitting or standing and it's a bit like they, they, these guys have just done like what to most people would be um, three months worth of training six months worth of training an A race the only one in, in the year and they're just doing that right in the middle of a three week grand tour and they'll get up the next day and do something else yeah. so that's pretty big but that ain't you know the stuff that the guys are riding at the moment I've said this to you before Ain't got nothing on what they're doing back in the day. So, not only was the uh, the last stage in, in 1903 was 471 kilometers long, just to throw it out there, you know, last last stage, guys. No Champs Elysees messing around. No procession. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Um, but the longest tour stage in history, 1920, won by uh, Fermin Lambeau, stage five, 482 kilometers. Which is bon- and he rode that in 19 hours 44 minutes, which on a, is probably on a bike that was like could have even been north of 20 kilos. He would have mm-hmm. been with you know in his woolens, and if it rained as well, like the amount of weight you're carrying. So even that's... on a bike that had been better suited as a weapon than as a bike. I don't know if you can tell me what the longest doesn't exist anymore, but the longest one day race used to be. Was it Paris Bordeaux? Flip them around, it's Bordeaux Parry. Bordeaux Parry, yeah. Bordeaux Parry. So that ranged average around about 560 kilometers. The first edition was closer to 600 kilometers. 1891. So again, you imagine these bikes these guys are on. Uh, and they could, the weird thing was, you could be paced behind a tandem. Mm, that's it yeah it was a motor paced race wasn't it yeah it became motor paced later um in the 40s they had derny riders with basically motorbikes but earlier on it was just like you could ride behind other riders so they go out with teams and they peel away and they you know whatever go and rest up in a hotel and drive on but it was won by a british guy called george pilkington mills yeah which is a lovely name he did it in a very very respectable time of 26 hours and 36 minutes. Behind him was another British guy called Montague Holbein. Really? Yeah. So we were really dominating, it would seem, the ultra-endurance well, events back that, in the day. That race was also won by some famous people, wasn't it? Yeah, Herman Van Springle won it about like a thousand times. He won it. I think he did it more times than there were editions. He was so <laughs> successful. Herman Van Springle was very good, but Tom Simpson also won that race. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. He did. He Jack, did make some. Maitre Jack, Jacques Anquantil also won it. Um, really? Yeah, uh-huh. Lewis, Lewis and Bobet, uh, Walter Goldfrew, 
uh, loads of, um, and our favourite elderly man of the peloton, Gilbert de Gloss Lassell. Oh, I love Gilbert. He's great. He's totally great. Who probably won it at the age of 45 because he was born aged 40, I believe. <laughs> this is kind of sort of slightly annoys me. Just like when you've done something really, really hard years ago, just let them have it. Don't mm. challenge them for it and take it away from them because they're ghosts and they can't compete anymore. So George Pilkington Mills, he held on to the, the jog tandem record. No one even rides tandems anymore. He held on to it, right, from... 1886 <laughs> through to 2019. Then some banana comes along in 2019 and does what it in... mug? I know. He did it in five days something and this bloke comes along and does it in four and you're like, dude, that's not cool. Just let it go. It's a tandem. Also, you've got better nutrition. They were drinking... They were... So when you went on a ride in those days, there weren't petrol stations. You jumped into a field and you slit the gut of a cow and you drank its blood. That is honestly how some of the Irish riders would do it. That's the only, there's no nutrition en route. If you saw cheese, you made a wrong turn. You're in a dairy, you weren't in Tuscany. Can I tell you my favourite fact about George Pilkington Mills? He's related to Carl Pilkington from Ricky Gervais. Apart from that, he also would be known to carry a Colt revolver around with him on rides so that he could fend off stray dogs. And he, he once killed five in a single ride. <laughs> How did they know? Does he dragging them behind him when he got there? Or he skinned them. He made them into pelts. It's a bit like the Revenant. He had a bag of Tom Hardy's like, where are the pelts? That's where we came. It's got a bag of dog pelts. Because the dog pelts were worth more than the prizes back in those days. Yeah. <laughs> just because the rabbit dogs? hole. I know. Also, what were we saying? You needed to protect yourself against bandits. Oh, now it makes more sense. He was he, in his when he wasn't riding his bike excessively far long distances on the tandem he was also the director of a small arms and machine gun uh factory at the and was part of the department of ministry of munitions in 1918 so that that probably explains why he had a colt revolver on him at all times i was shooting dogs thanks for joining us again dear listeners leave us a review comments let us know your hardest ride eh james we want to know about that and we'll, we'll even read some of them out on the next episode if you let us know yeah um, get in touch with us at all the usual places at cyclist mag on twitter uh, cyclist underscore dennis.co.uk as an email comment on apple and we'll read it out leave us a joke leave us a fact about greg wallace we'll we'll read it won't we james yeah and still nothing on Greg. Still nothing from Greg. Still nothing on Greg. We can but hope. So see you again in two weeks, listener. And chat to you later, James. See you later, mate.